Yesterday, Trump said goodbye. But he also said that he will be back, quote, in some form. The Biden era begins, and we look at what comes next. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, and I'm here with our host, Brian Becker. Nicole, uh, yes, Donald Trump said goodbye. Normally, always, in fact, the outgoing president is there uh, to greet the incoming president, to, to demonstrate to the world and to the country that there is the peaceful transfer of power. Donald Trump, as we all know, decided not to show up. Not that anybody from the Democratic Party or the Republican Party really wanted him to show up after he instigated the mob assault that temporarily dispersed Congress on January 6th so as to try to overcome or overturn the election results. Uh, But what Trump did do is he actually staged a ceremony to compete with Biden as Biden was preparing to take the walk uh, or the drive to the Capitol to take the uh, oath of office. So Trump went to Andrews Air Base and he actually literally had a 21-gun salute for himself and he lined up his family and a small number of friends and he gave a speech about how wonderful he is and how wonderful his four years were. Uh, And again, as you mentioned, he said, nobody knows exactly what this means or what he means. He said, we'll be back in some form. Again, I want to play a few audio clips before we start analyzing uh, a little bit more about the election, a little bit more about January 6th, but even more importantly, what to expect from the Biden administration. But again, it was an incredible, perfect Trump, a Trump-like exit uh, from the White House. Let's listen. So just a goodbye. We love you. We will be back in some form. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, Is Trump going to form a new party? Maybe the Patriot (laughs) Party? Is Ivanka or Donald Jr. going to be coming and taking his place? Is that the new form? Uh, We know that some of the Trump family members are now considering runs for Congress in 2022. Uh, But I also want to play a couple audio clips because, again, uh, an unprecedented way for the president of the United States to leave office. at Andrews Air Base, carrying out his own, you know, sort of ceremony for himself with a 21, it's not a 21 gun salute, it was 21 cannon blasts to to show how wonderful he is. Let's listen where he talks about how great the economy is right now. You're going to see incredible numbers start coming in if everything is sort of left alone. Be careful. Very complex. Be careful. But remember us when you see these things happening, if you would. Remember us, because uh, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at elements of our economy that are set to be a rocket ship up. It's a rocket ship up. All right. I mean, you have, you know, like last week, Nicole, uh, 950,000 people applied for unemployment benefits. But I guess they're not part of the rocket ship up. They got left at the landing at the landing strip. But not only were rocket ships going up, according to Trump, uh, but the vaccine was helping uh, helping COVID-19 skyrocket downward. I don't, how do you skyrocket downward? That part I never got. <laughs> Let's listen. We have the greatest country in the world. We have the greatest economy in the world. And as bad as the pandemic was, we were hit so hard, just like the entire world was hit so hard. Places that thought they got away with it didn't get away with it. They're suffering right now. We did something that is uh, really considered a medical miracle. They're calling it a miracle, and that was the vaccine. We got the vaccine developed in nine months instead of nine years or five years or ten years or 
a long time. It really is a great achievement. So you should start to see really good numbers over the next uh, few months. I think you're going to see those numbers really skyrocket downward. Nicole, can you skyrocket downward? I mean, sky and rocket, those normally indicate upward, but I mean, it's Trump, so he can, he says whatever he wants, I guess. Okay, but what about the, like, it's going to get really good. I mean, 100,000 Americans died in the last four weeks. The number that's dead, uh, the number of the dead in this country is over 400,000. Uh, he said we we were the we're the greatest country in the world. The whole world suffered from it, but we did a great job. Well, no, less than five thousand people died in China. Uh, people in Wuhan, where the virus was first discovered, uh, you know, they're back at work. They're having family gatherings. Uh, life is normal in Wuhan. Uh, anyway, uh, just a, right to the very bitter end. Trump is in complete complete denial. Um, I want to go to one last uh, one last audio clip, and this is about where he reiterates once, once more for the audience, for his crowd, for his beloved followers, that what happened to the American people with COVID and its failure wasn't really his failure. It's China. It's always China. The virus is a Chinese virus. Uh, again, here's our last words from Donald Trump right before he walks up Air Force One and is flown to his country club in Florida. Let's listen. The first thing we have to do is pay our respects and our love to the incredible people and families who suffered so gravely from the China virus. It's a uh, horrible thing that was put onto the world. We all know where it came from, but it's a horrible, horrible thing. So be very careful. Be very, very careful. Okay, be very, very careful. But, you know, for the longest time, Trump refused to wear a mask. Uh, he made sure that when armed an armed uprising happened in, in Michigan at the state capitol building in Lansing, uh, where people, you know, right-wingers were protesting against the imposition of health policy guidelines, including mask wearing, uh, Trump supported them. That was sort of a precursor to what happened on January 6th. He said, liberate Michigan. So he was all all with them. Um, again, the Trump era is over, Nicole. We're going to talk about whether Trumpism is over or whether Trump himself will play or continue to play or come back to play a major role in U.S. politics. We want to talk about that. Uh, but you know, let's first turn to uh, what Biden is doing in the first hours of his new administration. Brian, there were 17 executive orders that were that Biden went through and signed yesterday that have been prepared. Um, some of them may have some significance. Some of them are, uh, you know, clearly window dressing only. Um, but let's go through the list. Um, and if you have thoughts or comments on any of them, feel free to jump in. So, um, Two of them were ordering federal agencies to extend the federal eviction moratorium until at least March 31st and to extend the pause on federal student loans until at least September 30th. Something I'll note here, as of early January, there were an estimated 2.7 million mortgages that were already in forbearance, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. So um, there are people who are uh, and these are just people with mortgages. There are plenty of renters, um, plenty of people who are homeless who have been homeless through this pandemic who continue to be homeless. So this is one of those that is, um, you know, a bare minimum, essentially, and that there are so many things that need to be done. Um, similarly, with the pause on federal student loans, it's, of course, only federal loans. Um, and of course, during his campaign, Biden had proposed forgiving $10,000 in debt for everybody with federal student loans. Um, but recently, he's walked that back and said, well, I'm not going to use my, you know, my my power, essentially, to do that. Um, I'm not going to use an executive action for that. So again, this is the bare minimum. Um, and he's not doing some of the things that he was really pushed into doing by the the movement um, against Bernie or the, the movement for Bernie. And so, you know, there's a possibility we'll see that down the line, but we don't see that here. He reversed a travel ban, the Muslim ban, for several, several largely Muslim and African countries. He extended protections against deportation for Liberians. 
Um, and he also called on Congress to take up a broader immigration bill. So, you know, calling on Congress obviously um, is not really a meaningful thing. But uh, Brian, can you just talk a little bit more about what's in that immigration bill, that proposal? Right. It's It could be a very significant bill if it were to pass in the form that Biden and his aides uh, are describing it. Uh, first of all, in terms of eligibility, this would be a comprehensive immigration reform package. There hasn't been any uh, comprehensive immigration reform since the 1986-87 uh, passage of uh, uh, immigration reform back during the Reagan period. That allowed about 3.7 million undocumented people to basically have a path to citizenship. They took it. There were onerous conditions, but it it was an amnesty, basically. Now we have 11 or 12 million people who are here without documents. And what Biden is saying and what he's telling people in the immigration rights movement is that his proposal is to include for eligibility Everyone who was in the United States before 1-1-21, before January 1st, 2021. Uh, that's far different than the uh, bill during the Reagan era where you had to be in the country for at least five years. So this could conceivably cover 11, 12, 13 million people who are now without documents. That would be huge. And what Biden is saying is that the plan should have an immediate pathway for legalization and have uh, conditions so that people can get work permits, uh, residency permits, and be able to live a normal life, not have to live in the shadows. And that after five years of having applied uh, for all of those people who were undocumented before 1121, uh, after five years, they could apply for citizenship and that citizenship would be granted three years after that. So it would be an eight-year-long process. That sounds like a long time. But just remember, for 11 million people, uh, the, the idea that you would have legalization and not be faced with the threat of deportation and a process would be established for legalization, I mean, citizenship or, or you know, legal residency, that's pretty huge. Again, uh, Biden put it out, but he's also, according to some of the reports, telling people in the immigration rights movement, this is what we want. I'm going for a, a really good program. It doesn't include anything about more border security or more deportations to start off, uh, something that would just be a clear pathway for legalization. But, and this is the important part, but be patient with me because I have other priorities. I have to deal with COVID-19, and we also have to deal with the impeachment in the Senate. So it sounds great. I mean, by American immigration standards, it would be a very important step forward in spite of all of the other coercive and negative elements of it. I think the immigration rights movement will look favorably upon such a plan, uh, again, given the, you know, the options which are worse. But Again, if it's only talk and not action, uh, or if it's a starting position that will then be whittled away at, we don't know actually what it might mean. So there's a lot of, uh, lot of discussion going on and a lot of study of what this might mean among immigration rights movements uh, and among immigrant families. Another executive action reversed Trump's plan to exclude non-citizens from the census. This sounds like something that's small, and it's not really clear quite yet how this will play out, but um, it should mean that all of the non-citizens who may have been counted during the census counting process, which has ended, um, that they will be included. Of course, the census already has lots of problems, like if you're a non-citizen, especially under the Trump administration, you're terrified of you know, census takers who you it's unclear who they are coming to your door, trying to take, you know, specific information about you. The census is very, very flawed, but this, you know, this would change that um, and would include the non-citizens who have been counted before um, Trump's decree in July. And so would include all of that so that, um, you know, gerrymandering of congressional districts, which is what the census, one of the things the census goes toward, um, would be a little bit less than usual. Yeah, there are a couple other ones that could be important. Uh, the, one of the executive orders revoked a permit for the Keystone 
uh, XL oil pipeline. Uh, he, uh, Trump, I mean, the new executive order also overturns Trump's executive order that uh, forced the United States out of the Paris Climate uh, Treaty. So this is a signal to the world the U.S. is coming back in. Whether it actually has an impact on climate change, maybe not so much, but it does, you know, it's a, it's a significant change. Uh, he, Trump also ordered uh, executive agencies to review 103 Trump-era actions on the environment and public health. Of course, Trump was deregulating and encouraging polluters to pollute more. Those could be significant. Uh, last one that I want to talk about is, uh, well, this wasn't an executive order, but this is what this is news today that Biden is seeking a five-year extension of a new START treaty with Russia. Now, you know, usually when a U.S. government comes into office, this was true with Obama in 2009. It was also true, of course, with Trump, that U.S. government comes in and says, historically, we'd like to have better relations with Russia. Obama said that in the beginning. He's, you know, Hillary Clinton went and met with Lavrov, the Russian foreign uh, minister, and said with a great big, you know, sort of symbolic red button, said, let's press the reset button. Let's get back on track. Uh, that was short lived, especially after Russia intervened in Syria to stop U.S. regime change plans in Syria. And because uh, Victoria Nuland, who's now a prominent leader in the State Department under Biden, once again, she and others, it was bipartisan, it was she and John McCain and others uh, helped organize and support and became cheerleaders for, and perhaps the the real conductors behind the scenes of the Maidan uprising that led to the coup d'etat toppling the Yanukovych government in Ukraine in 2014. That led ultimately to Russia having a referendum or supporting a referendum in Crimea, a historically Russian area that was home to uh, Russia's most important naval base. Uh, the people in Crimea who are mainly ethnically Russian, culturally Russian, linguistically Russian, they voted to re-affix uh, Crimea to Russia. Russia. Crimea had been part of Russia until Khrushchev in 1954 as an administrative measure, transferred sovereignty uh, of Crimea over to Ukraine. But that was when Ukraine and Russia were part of the same country, the Soviet Union, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Russia was the largest. Ukraine was the second largest republic in the USSR. So uh, anyway, Putin supported the, the referendum. It was clear he wasn't going to allow Crimea to become a new NATO base. And that's when uh, fi the final denouement happened with U.S.-Russian relations, and it's been bad ever since. Then Trump came in and said he wanted better relations for with Russia, and Trump was, you know, then condemned as a, a stooge of Putin. But here you have Biden coming in and saying, "Let's have a five-year extension of a new Star Treaty. That's a nuclear arms reduction treaty." Uh, first with the Soviet Union, and then after the Soviet Union was no more, it was extended with Russia. So let's see what happens with that. That could be uh, something of a sign. But I think overall, under Anthony Blinken, and of course, Newland is in the new government, and other, other like sort of hardcore anti-Russia hawks are in the Biden administration, I don't expect much of an improvement in U.S.-Russian relations. But anyway, um, again, Nicole, it's a, it's day, well, we're in day two now, I guess, of the Biden administration. Uh, I have to say what's most noteworthy to me is that we are in Washington, D.C. And as we mentioned in our show on Tuesday and Wednesday, this does not appear to be the uh, peaceful transfer of power. Washington, D.C. is still in armed camp. 25,000 heavily armed soldiers are occupying this city. Uh, they are enforcing a prohibition on people traveling in big parts of the federal area of Washington, D.C. That would include the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, the White House, 
the Capitol, the Supreme Court, all of that is off limits. Uh, this is an armed camp here. So Biden takes office under a remarkable set of circumstances where the image of the United States, I think, has been, well, permanently altered in, in, in terms of how it's viewed on the world stage. American governance, which you know, the U.S. always lectured the rest of the world, follow America, be like America. We're a stable government. We're a durable government. Uh, uh, politicians come and go, but our system is so strong that when they leave office, we don't devolve into civil war, that we have a peaceful transfer of power. All of that is up in smoke. And again, uh, it was really something what happened on January 6th. Nicole, we talked about it a lot. But here we were at the inauguration. And again, you couldn't even go there uh, because Washington, D.C. looks a lot more like Baghdad's green zone under U.S. occupation than it does the the greatest democracy in the world. Yeah. And, and before I respond to that question in particular, I did want to add a couple more actions that I think are pretty big in the news, but that we could um, just discuss briefly. The um, Biden rejoined the World Health Organization, which was, I think, another um, signal, like you mentioned, to the world that that you know Biden is a stable manager of U.S. affairs, um, and created an office of White House COVID nineteen response, which sounds very minor and maybe is. It's just that we didn't actually have one towards the end of the Trump administration. There was no one actually managing the COVID response really. Um, and then he also stopped the construction of the border wall and terminated the national emergency declaration that Trump had made to divert money to the wall. But um, though that sounds like a good thing, and I'm sure it is in some ways, um, I believe a lot of the funds that were diverted toward building the wall were mostly di diverted from the Pentagon and from other law enforcement priorities. So it's not like that money is going to like, you know, build affordable housing, which it could, it could do, but that's, that's not what the, what the executive order did. Um, and I think that dovetails a lot with what you were just saying, Brian, that the city is completely under lockdown. Um, the metros, all the subway stations were um, a lot were closed yesterday. There are, you know, just walking around the city, you're not even allowed to to bike um, into a, a good bit of the city. Um, there's military troops, armored tanks everywhere. It is uh, fairly, fairly surreal. I mean, this is a similar response that we saw this summer to peaceful protests. Um, but it, it really does show the rest of the world that the U.S. is not capable of this peaceful transfer of power um, that, that so many places view to be, you know, really a hallmark of democracy. And I want to talk about why, why they did this. I mean, I've been speaking to other media outlets. I've been interviewed on other outlets and they're, they're saying, well, why did why did the U.S. Uh, do this on Inauguration Day? I mean, doesn't it make the U.S. look like what we're describing, a, a fragile democracy, not an omnipotent power? And the reason is quite obvious to me, at least. This makes the U.S. look bad, yes, but what would have made the U.S. look even worse in the aftermath of January 6th is a large gathering of fascist extremists who were uh, in, in, intent on carrying out violence. Uh, it would have looked bad for bombs to go off during the inauguration. And we know that bombs were planted in various places around the Capitol where the inaugural swearing in ceremony took place yesterday. They were planted during that uh, January 6th attack on the Capitol. So the, the U.S. establishment decided better safe than sorry. It's going to be look bad, but it's going to look even worse should there be a follow-up attack of some type on uh, on January 20th after January 6th. So again, the United States, Nicole, we, you know, we have to think about what this means going forward. Uh, I have to tell you, the Answer Coalition had a permit to have demonstrations all along the parade route, just as we did on 2017 we had, you know, 15,000 people in 2017. We had permits, well, we had applied for permits a year ago, regardless of whether a Republican was going to win Trump or a Democrat, we were going to be along the inaugural parade route or somewhere during the inauguration ceremonies. 
you know, with banners and demands because, of course, uh, tens of millions of people lost their job because money keeps getting diverted to the bloated military budget so that the U.S. can be the policeman of the world. Uh, people are being evicted from their homes or the threat of eviction uh, or, or being foreclosed. There are so many social and economic reasons why the progressive working class and anti-war movement would want to be on the streets. We applied for those permits. Ultimately, we were the only permit that was granted, the Answer Coalition, and we decided not to use the permit. And I want to explain why we didn't and also what this means or what it you know foretells about what's coming in terms of the government using the events on January 6th and the events yesterday as a pretext to suppress dissent going forward. The permit that we were granted, we asked for permits for 5,000 people. The permit that we were granted set, stated we had to have less than 100 people. It had to be in one of two places, either John Marshall Park, which is at 3rd and Constitution, or at the Navy Memorial, which is a few blocks west of that on Pennsylvania Avenue, that no one could come to that, that we would have to vet the 100 people who were coming in. In other words, the public couldn't come to the demonstration. The media could not come to where we were. So we'd have no public, meaning no people, and no media. So the, the government issued two permits to the Answer Coalition so that it could say, oh, no, we didn't suppress dissent. Look, we gave permits. But they're permits that were written in such a way that they made protest meaningless, ineffective. And I think that's a bad sign. And, and I was looking at the way the, the presidential caravan uh, made its way from the White House or the Blair House over to the Capitol yesterday, and it took a different route than it normally does. Normally, it would come right down Pennsylvania Avenue, but they rerouted it on Constitution Avenue, and that's because they thought even a demonstration of 100 people uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue and 3rd Street or Pennsylvania Avenue and 9th Street would be something they wouldn't want anyone to know about. So in all ways, the the sort of maintenance of free speech rights was completely a mirage. So we decided, no, we're not going to play along with this game, with this mirage. We notified them we're not using that permit. That's really not a way for free speech to be exercised. And we also know that even though Trump and his minions engaged in a seditious conspiracy, and there are laws about seditious conspiracy, and they're very severe, they carry 20 years in prison, instead of charging uh, Trump or his co-conspirators, the people high up, with a seditious conspiracy, Biden is talking about passing a domestic anti-terrorism law for ideologically based terrorism. If that's enacted and if they say it's going to be against you know, white supremacists or fascists, you can bet your bottom dollar that it will be mainly used against progressive, left-wing, working-class, pro-socialist, anti-imperialist, and anti-racist forces. So we are, we are in a situation, Nicole, where the country is still politically polarized. Uh, the election, you know, when you look at how many people voted— it's a clear sign of social and political tension. I want to talk about some of those numbers with you. But there's ongoing polarization. Trump is not in jail. He hasn't been arrested for seditious conspiracy. He has slightly broken with the fascists who are now uh, Proud Boys and others are denouncing Trump as a traitor right now because uh, in order to save his own skin after the debacle on January 6th, he came out and said that the Justice Department should go and prosecute people who engaged in violence at the Capitol. So now the fascists feel abandoned, as they are, by their erstwhile ally, Donald Trump. And so, you know, they're still there. They're fragmented right now. They, they're, they have less momentum because Trump was, in fact, their leader and he's abandoned them. But, you know, this level of polarization means that there's going to be lots of political activity. The voter turnout on uh, the November 2020 election was huge. I mean, I think it was like 28 million more people voted uh, in 2020 than they did in 2016. 
that is a sign of of social and political tension in the country. Let's talk a little bit about those numbers. And and also, I think it helps us when we look at the numbers, understand why Biden won and who who were the key votes for him. Right. And, you know, one other component of of this conversation is looking at how, how Biden reacted when Trump, you know, Trump didn't show up for the inauguration yesterday, but he did uphold the longstanding tradition of leaving a letter for his um his in, for the incoming administration. And Biden said publicly, no, no, this is a private letter. I'm not going to tell anyone um, what it said, but it was very generous. You know, he was very friendly and very nice about it, which does not bode well necessarily for uh, anyone hoping that Trump might be arrested for con- for conspiracy. So his his break with the fascists does seem to be holding. Um, in terms of voter turnout in 2020, voter turnout was 66 percent which was 6% higher than it was in 2016. In 2016, it was 60% of the vo- the voting eligible population that turned out. Um, 2008, I think a lot of us think of as a, as a year with a, a really high voter turnout. That was when President Obama uh, ran and won. And he the turnout that year was 61.6%, so higher than 2016, but far lower than 2020. And when you look even historically, the, I mean, even... Um, you know, 1900 was the last time that voted, voter turnout was as high as it was this year in 2020. In 1900, it was 73.7 percent. Of course, in 1900, far, far fewer people um, a, a, as a proportion of the population were eligible to vote. Uh, black people technically were able to vote, but there were huge barriers. Women couldn't vote. Asian Americans couldn't vote. Um you know, so that's not even really re- that relevant. So 157 million people voted in 2020, 66% of the voting eligible population. And like you said, 27 million more than in 2016. Um, I mean, what does that what does that tell you, Brian? And uh, and how did how and why did Biden win? Um, and, you know, what do you think he needs to do to actually retain support of people who voted for him? Because I think it's clear that a lot of people voted for him not voting for him, but voting against Donald Trump. Yes, indeed. Um, Trump's vote rose by over 11 million uh, compared to 2016. So his base grew, but it was far less than the the vote for Biden. Biden's vote was 15.6 million more than Hillary Clinton's. 15 million more people voted for Biden than Hillary Clinton. And again, it's not because Biden is, as we all know, we don't even need to say this. He's not an attractive candidate. I mean, the guy is largely incoherent. He was terrible in the primaries and the debates. Uh, If it hadn't been for the Democratic Party's establishment desire to crush Bernie Sanders right before the Super Tuesday vote in early March, Biden would not have, have gotten the nomination. I mean, the only reason... Biden got the name nomination was he was the guy the Democratic establishment could sort of rally everyone around within the establishment and compel the other candidates who were dividing up the so-called centrist vote to leave and endorse Biden, like Pete Buttigieg, who's been now you know rewarded for his abandoning his campaign that he was doing quite well with in order to get a cabinet position. Anyway, Biden got the nomination because the Democratic establishment wanted to crush Bernie. That's it. Okay, so people didn't vote for Biden because he's a great debater. He's not a great speaker. He's not not because he's a progressive. He's not. He was, you know, the architect of the mass incarceration system that was with the Criminal Justice Reform Act of 1994, which he considered his proudest achievement. He was uh, that a primary ally of the segregationists in the uh, in the Senate. In when he came into the Senate as a freshman from a northern state that was starting in the early 1970s, uh, he supported the Iraq War. I mean, he was a you know he loved the Iraq War. He was all about the Iraq War. He was for the Patriot Act. The guy is not progressive in any way. So he's not the reason 15 million more people voted. 15 million more people voted because huge parts of the population uh, were either sick of Donald Trump or afraid of Donald Trump. Uh, The big election outcomes that really made the difference uh, were really in the suburbs 
and with voter turnout from people, low-income people and people in black, in the black community in particular. Now, there's this kind of concept that that Trump's base is all like working class white people who are alienated and uh, who are, you know, subject to the demagogy of the right wing and their white supremacists and all that. Of course, that's partly, partly true. But when you look at the actual numbers of who voted for Trump and who voted for Biden and why and why Biden won, and he won by 7 million votes, just think of these numbers. Biden had a huge lead over Trump among households with an income of less than $50,000. People whose family income was less than $50,000 a year, they voted 55% for Biden, 44% for Trump. Those with incomes of 50,000 to 99,000, they voted 57% for Biden, 42% for Trump. Trump had a massive lead among families with incomes of over $100,000. In that category, families that made over $100,000, Trump's vote was 54% compared to 42% for Biden. Uh, Again, among black voters, 87% for Biden, 12% for Trump. Women voters, 57% for Biden, 42% for Trump. Uh, Latinos, 65% for Biden, 32% for Trump. Asian Americans, 61% uh, to 34%. And of course, in the in the state of Georgia, which was key to the Democrats now having the majority, it's actually 50-50, but with Kamala Harris as vice president and thus the, the president of the Senate, she can break tie votes. The Democrats are up by one. Uh, the key thing in this in the Senate runoff races in in Georgia in January was a very 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 high turnout of black voters. They were the ones who delivered the victory to those two Democratic senatorial candidates. So uh, again, uh, when you look at the polarization in society and you look at these numbers, it's very revealing. I do want to say before we close out on this segment, uh, Nicole. In the last eight elections, the last eight elections, starting in 1992, the Democrats have won the popular vote seven out of the eight times. Seven out of eight. The only time the Democrats did not win the popular vote was John Kerry's miserable campaign in 2004 against George W. Bush. And, uh, you know, that's it. So, Obviously, the Republicans are now not only a white party and a white supremacist party in the main in terms of their line, they're also a minority party, and that trend will continue to grow. The reason the Republicans are still so strong is the Supreme Court because of the the loading up of courts at the appeals court level and district court level uh, with Republican right-wingers. The state legislatures are, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans dominate at the state level. And most importantly, the only reason these election outcomes are even close in spite of the popular vote is because of the existence of the archaic slavery-based electoral system that gives added power to rural areas and to smaller states. Uh, That's the only reason the Republicans retain all of this institutional power because in terms of popular vote, they are truly a minority party. Brian, in just our last couple of minutes here, um, what are we expecting from Biden in terms of domestic policy and foreign policy? I mean, you know, this was a, a much vaunted win where the actually, you know, there are 51 Democratic Party votes in the Senate. Uh, the Democratic Party also has the majority in the House. And of course, now Biden is the president. So um, there is just as nearly as much leeway and um, power in the Democratic Party as there was in 2008 when Barack Obama promised all of these big things, promised immigration, you know, comprehensive immigration reform, promised uh, Medicare for all or some sort of, uh, you know, public option. Um, what what are you seeing? What do you think will happen in, in uh, the coming days? Well, like 2009, the Democrats can do 
whatever they want because they control both houses of Congress and the White House, as you're saying. Now, um, Obama said Medicare for all was off the table in 2009. He said he wouldn't even entertain it as a concept, even though a New York Times poll at that time showed that 70% of Americans wanted Medicare for all, which is not that complicated. It wasn't like having healthcare is not, you know, it shouldn't be considered like a left-wing thing. Um, people want healthcare. They want to have it be affordable. Older people love having Medicare, even though it's kind of too expensive. It's better than the alternative. So Biden, I mean, Biden has the opportunity to pass Medicare for all, but it, while campaigning, he promised that if it passed both houses of Congress, he would veto it. So he's guaranteeing, he's he's telling the American people, including all the poor voters who voted for Trump and the working class voters who voted for Trump, nothing's going to fundamentally change. So you might hate me, but guess what? Don't expect anything from me either because I'm not going to give you anything. Because Obama, Biden, like Obama, as of now, minus extreme pressure from below, is so devoted to the capitalist health insurance companies, the corporate capitalist health insurance companies that uh, you know, Obama, instead of having Medicare for all, privatized health care completely uh, with the Affordable Care Act. Every person had to, under penalty of fine, enroll with a private insurance company, and that in order to access health care, you had to pay the insurance company premiums such that insurance company investors could be handsomely rewarded for their investment. So this kind of pure capitalism and and they they toyed with a public option, but they didn't even do that. N not only was there not Medicare for all, not even a public option, there were, yes, yeah, some advantages from the Affordable Care Act that did extend Medicaid or offered that in, in some states that, that happened, many states. That was good. More people got coverage. Pre-existing conditions um, were not the basis to remove you from eligibility for health care plans. There were some positive elements, but it was far from what the people in the country actually needed, such that even halfway through the Obama administration, 50% of all bankruptcies in America, personal bankruptcies, were for unpaid medical bills. I mean, that's a disgrace. That's unconscionable. Uh, Biden could do anything he wants right now, and he could do Medicare for all, but they don't want to do it. Again, they want to extend the moratorium on evictions only for federal properties, by the way. But, you know, why not have cancel the rents? What happens after the moratorium ends when people haven't worked for five months, can't pay one month's rent? How are you going to pay five months when the moratorium uh, ends? Uh, they have to really do things to help uh, the working class and to help poor people and to help those who are suffering. And I think right now uh, we, can, we can have very, very low expectations for Biden left to his own devices. What we need, and we keep saying this in show after show, we talk about it when we talk with Professor Richard Wolf, that Roosevelt had a right-wing economic program too when he came in as president in 1933 in the middle of the Great Depression. It was because there became and was a large communist movement, a socialist movement, two socialist parties. The CIO was forming, workers were seizing factories. Uh, there was massive you know, intense labor and class struggles going on in the United States. And Roosevelt represented one section of the ruling class capitalists who thought, wait, in order to save our system, in order to prevent this from getting out of hand, in order to stop the spread of socialism, we better give people something. I mean, the only way we're going to get the American ruling class to do that, which even other capitalist ruling classes routinely do, the ones in Europe, or in Japan, which is provide basic social and economic rights to workers, the only way this will happen in this country is for there to be intense, massive militant struggle. So those of us who are on the left, those of us in the labor movement, those of us who care about the lives of working class people, uh, we have to engage in building that kind of mass movement. And that, in fact, should be our top priority. And what about foreign policy, Brian? I mean, we saw Antony Blinken, the nominee for Secretary of State. He was uh, in the Senate hearing this week, and he had a lot of, you know, a lot of the same things to say, essentially. 
Right. I mean, this is a neocon imperialist or, yeah, neocon imperialist, uh, you know, ruling class government. Uh, Biden is, uh, again, was a war hawk on Iraq. I mean, the Iraq war was, you know, the crime of this century. A million people died, according to the Lancet Medical Journal, who would not have otherwise died. And they died based on a war of aggression waged by the United States against Iraq, a country of about 30 million people. Iraq had been hobbled. It was sanctioned. It was surrounded. It posed a threat to no one. It was invaded because Cheney and Rumsfeld and George W. Bush and Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton uh, all thought, yeah, this is low-hanging fruit. We can destroy this independent government. We can create a puppet government. It's the second largest oil producer in the resource-rich Middle East. You know, Saudi Arabia is essentially a puppet. Let's make Iraq a puppet. You know, then they wanted to make Libya a puppet, and they wanted to make Syria a puppet. These are the people who brought these wars to the people of the Middle East. That's who they are. In, in 2011, because the U.S. had become so bogged down in these losing wars in the Middle East, they didn't lose all of them, but they were certainly not winning in Iraq and certainly not winning elsewhere, maybe Libya. They succeeded in destroying a government, the government in Libya. But Barack Obama said, and he represented a wing of ruling class politics, wait, this is not a good idea. Having the U.S. bogged down in endless uh, conflict in the Middle East with no tangible real victories to, to show for it, it bogs us down while China, not at war, uh, is developing and becoming the dominant power in Asia and on its way to becoming a real rival to the United States economically and diplomatically and maybe militarily on a global basis. So Obama wanted to move away from the Middle East and pivot towards Asia. That meant, according to the plan, to put 60% of U.S. aircraft and U.S. Uh, naval vessels into the, uh, into the Asia-Pacific region. region. Uh, and all kinds of economic plans like the Trans-Pacific Partnership were designed to create a network of governments and countries excluding China so that the U.S. would dominate China, uh, trade policy in China and push China out. Now, that has not succeeded. Uh, it did create more animus and hostility towards China, harassment of China, a new Cold War with China, but China's still growing. And even this year in 2020 or last year, China was the only country in the of, of all the major economies that actually showed that it was had e that it had economic growth that was during COVID. And uh, China is set to expand even on a on a greater level in comparison, say, to the United States or the EU. And let's remember that the that china represents one out of every four or five people in the world i mean the population in china is greater than the population of all of the european union countries combined uh, it's greater you know than other big regions in the world it's greater than all of latin america so china has momentum and i think the new biden foreign policy orientation will be mainly to maintain this super hard, super aggressive, so-called tough approach towards China. And Anthony Blinken, the new Secretary of State, said he wants to work with the GOP, the Republican Party, to maintain huge pressure on China. By the way, Blinken, and so we'll watch to see what that means, Biden also said that um, he backs recognition and the Biden administration backs recognition of Juan Guaido, I mean, that's remarkably, I mean, well, one, it's a failure because the coup d'etat that, that Trump and Bolton and Elliot Abrams tried to engineer against Venezuela, it, it succeeded in imposing a lot of economic pain on the Venezuelan people, but not in toppling the democratically elected government uh, with this, the fiction of Juan Guaido being the new democratically elected leader of Venezuela, complete nonsense. But Blinken says... On that, too, they're going to continue uh, the Trump policy. So we'll see. I mean, there are two areas that we'll see if Trump actually, I mean, if Biden actually or Blinken and Biden, that foreign policy team, uh, go back to Obama's policy on the Iran nuclear agreement. We'll see 
I'm not overly optimistic about that. And also, uh, Obama started to begin to have not normalization of relations or maybe a kind of normalization of relations with Cuba. Uh, Obviously, the embassies in Havana in the U.S. reopened after 54 years of being closed. But the blockade of Cuba didn't end. The economic sanctions blockade didn't end. Um, But again, we'll have to see. But I'm not overly optimistic. I'm sure Iran and I'm sure Cuba prefer Trump over, I mean, prefer Biden over Trump. But whether that actually leads to a tangible reorientation towards those two countries, that too remains to be seen. I'll just quote this uh, line in the Wall Street Journal on our way out. President-elect Joe Biden's pick for Secretary of State backed a tough approach to China and found common ground with Republicans on issues ranging from Israel to Venezuela, hinting at a more unified approach to foreign policy in the next four years. Yeah, Brian, that just sounds like a unified approach to war and imperialism over the next four years. You know, when they say America is back, they mean they're reestablishing the imperialist neocon consensus that targets other countries for aggression of a military or economic type. Again, the people of the United States need to rise up, not only so that we have health care, not only so that we can get rid of student debt, not only so that we can have decent paying jobs, we need to rise up because this is a criminal imperialist government and nobody should think just because you're happy that Trump's not the president, that Joe Biden represents any meaningful change when it comes to American imperialism, U.S. imperialism's role on the global stage. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.